We turn in the scriptures back to Luke chapter 23. On Friday we read up to verse 49. We're going to begin right there at verse 50. Luke 23 verse 50. And we'll read through chapter 24 verse 12. The text for the sermon is the first eight verses of chapter 24. First eight verses. And behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor, and he was a good man and a just. The same had not consented to the counsel and deed of them. He was of Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. This man went unto Pilate and begged the body of Jesus, and he took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a sepulcher that was hewn in stone, wherein never man before was laid. And that day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew on. And the women also which came with him from Galilee followed after and beheld the sepulcher and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and ointments and rested the Sabbath day according to the commandment. Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them. And they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher, and they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. And it came to pass, as they were much perplexed thereabout, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you, when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words, and returned from the sepulcher, and told all these things unto the eleven, and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, and Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, and other women that were with them, which told these things unto the apostles. And their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. Then arose Peter and ran unto the sepulchre, and stooping down, he beheld the linen clothes laid by themselves, and departed, wondering in himself at that which was come to pass. We read God's word that far. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we commemorate the resurrection of our Lord from the dead. We do that today by taking a look at the testimony of the angels to the women that Sunday morning. There was a group of women who had followed Jesus around during his earthly ministry They're mentioned in the passage. Mary Magdalene was one of them. There was a Joanna. There was a Salome. There was another Mary. 
These women had observed when a certain counselor named Joseph of Arimathea took down the body of Jesus from the cross on Friday. Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin, but he did not consent to the death of Jesus. The women watched him as he carefully and lovingly took down the body of Jesus from the cross, wrapped that body in clean linen cloths, and then carried the body with Nicodemus to a sepulcher nearby, a sepulcher that was cut out of the stone and in which no man had ever been laid before. Joseph was a wealthy man, and he devoted this sepulcher to Jesus for his burial. The women watched as Joseph and Nicodemus brought the body of the Lord into the sepulcher and laid it down there, nicely and neatly wrapped in those linen cloths. They also watched as Joseph then rolled a large stone that was specially made to be a covering to the opening of the sepulcher in front of that opening to block it. And we are told in Matthew that later that stone was sealed shut in place. After that, the women returned back into the city. They prepared spices and ointments specially made for the body to prevent it from stinking. But on the next day, Saturday, they rested according to the commandment. Saturday was the seventh day of the week. It was the Sabbath day. But that was the last time that the Sabbath would be observed on the seventh day. On the third day, Sunday morning, those women woke up very early in the morning, before the sun had risen. They gathered up their spices and their ointments that they had prepared on Friday, and they rushed out of the city, through the streets, to the gates of Jerusalem. And they burst through the gates, heading out to the sepulcher, But what they found that morning was not what they expected. What they found as they drew near to the sepulcher, the place they had seen just a couple of days earlier, was that the stone was rolled away from the opening of the sepulcher. And it seems that right at that moment, if we look at the Gospel of John, Mary Magdalene, bewildered, perplexed, turned around and ran back into the city to tell the disciples. But the other women seemingly proceeded to the sepulcher. The other women stepped into the sepulcher. And as they entered in, they saw what they did not expect to see that morning. They became the first witnesses of the evidence of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and the only witnesses of the testimony of the angels. This morning we are commemorating the resurrection of our Lord from the dead. Why do we commemorate that? Why is this such a significant and monumental event worth our consideration once every year and indeed really every Sunday? The reason is that not only the death of Jesus but also the resurrection of Jesus is one of the essential components of the gospel of our salvation. The good news of the gospel is not only that Jesus died on the cross, but that he rose from the dead. And it is these two wonder works of God through Christ that form the foundation of our salvation. This is the good news. 
Let's listen to it this morning under the theme, Jesus Risen. Notice, first of all, the testimony of angels. Secondly, the necessity of the event. And finally, the call to believe and confess. We are told in the passage that when the women came to the sepulcher and they entered in, they found not the body of the Lord Jesus. They found not the body of the Lord Jesus. And as I have remarked before, no one has ever found the body of the Lord Jesus. From that Sunday morning until this Sunday morning, no one has ever found that body. Nor has anyone ever found even a shred of evidence of what happened to that body, except the evidence found in Scripture. No one has ever found a shred of evidence that that body was somehow stolen, somehow removed, and moved to another location. Never in all of the annals of history has anything been brought forward to suggest that something different happened to Jesus than what is recorded in the scriptures. They found not the body of the Lord Jesus because Jesus arose from the dead that morning. Jesus arose from the dead before they came to the sepulcher earlier that day in the darkness of the morning. And when he arose from the dead, he walked right through the walls of that sepulcher No need to open it. No need to move the stone out of the way. In his resurrected and glorified body, Jesus walked right through stone walls. And that's why they found not his body that morning. All they found were linen cloths. Those same linen cloths with which Joseph had wrapped up the body a couple of days before now lay there in a neat pile as if Jesus was still in them but they found not the body of the Lord Jesus. God teaches us this simple and wondrous fact in our text as one of the great proofs of the resurrection of Jesus. But God would not leave it at that. The monumental and significant nature of this event must be testified. It must be announced by glorious messengers of heaven. Those glorious messengers of heaven are angels. God created angels in the beginning. Angels are invisible spiritual creatures who dwell in heaven before the face of God, servants of God, messengers of God, warriors of heaven. And God sent these angels into the earth at various significant points in the history of redemption to announce, to testify of what God had done or what God was about to do. We think, for example, of the angel Gabriel whom God sent to the Virgin Mary in Nazareth to announce to her what God was about to do do in her and through her that she would become the mother of the Messiah. The son of David, the son of man, the son of God would be conceived in her womb even though she knew not a man. God sent an angel to announce that. And about nine months later, he sent a whole choir of angels who appeared in the sky outside of Bethlehem to those shepherds keeping watch over their flock by night. 
And that choir of angels announced to them, Fear not, for behold, we bring you glad tidings of great joy. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Go and see the baby Messiah. Now again, God sends angels from heaven to announce the monumental and significant event that has taken place behind the walls of that sepulcher, which no human eye saw. Those women, as they ducked their heads and entered into the sepulcher that Sunday morning, saw angels. We are told of that first in Matthew chapter 28, verse 2. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. And his countenance was like lightning, and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, we read of that same angel described this way. Entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were affrighted. In our text, in Luke chapter 24, we read, And it came to pass, as they were much perplexed thereabout, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Two men. And those two men, those two angels, were the same that the Mary Magdalene would later see when she came back to the sepulcher, recorded in John 20, verse 11 and 12. But Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping, And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher and seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Angels, in the appearance of men, young men, clothed in white garments, their faces shining brightly and brilliantly like lightning. This is what the women saw when they looked into the sepulcher. These angels, in the appearance of men, young men, were clothed in long white garments, and their faces shined like the sun. The reason for that is that they were angels who had just come from heaven. These angels, only moments before, had been standing in heaven, in the presence of God. Standing before the throne of God, which is where the angels dwell. And there in the presence of God. God, who shines in heaven with all of his glory and beauty and majesty. These angels stand before the face of God. And now, suddenly sent to the earth, they appeared before the angels, shining brightly. No wonder. They were reflecting the brilliant beauty and glory of God himself that always shines in heaven. Their brightness, their whiteness, their brilliance testifies to the fact that these were indeed angels of God sent from the presence of God himself. And the message that they brought, therefore, was nothing less than the message of God. Now, Matthew and Mark say there was one angel. Luke and John say there were two angels. 
Some say that's a contradiction, but there's no contradiction. There was first one angel, and that one angel was then accompanied by a second angel. So that the real question is not why does Matthew and Mark say there's one and Luke and John say there's two, but the real question is why were there two? Why was the first angel then accompanied by a second angel? The answer to that question can be found if we just search the scriptures. We find in Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, at the mouth of two witnesses, or at the mouth of three witnesses, shall the matter be established. That was God's law. That was God's own ordinance that he gave to Moses. God himself said that if you want to establish the truth of a matter, you need two witnesses or three. When there are two people who saw it, or three, and they testify, you better listen to their message, because the matter is established. And so God himself sent not one, but two angels, two heavenly witnesses, to establish beyond the shadow of a doubt the truthfulness of their message. When the women saw these magnificent Heavenly creatures, as you can imagine, they fell down on their faces and were sore afraid. But the first words that came out of the mouths of the angels, according to Matthew and Luke, the first words were, Fear not. Don't be afraid. And then what we find in our text, in verse 5, the angel said to the women, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Can you imagine the thrill of joy that must have given to the women at the same time as their confusion and their perplexity, the thrill of joy that must have come up inside their hearts when they heard, Why seek ye the living among the dead? They expected that Jesus was still dead. They came to the tomb that morning to put spices and ointments on the body of the dead. Why seek ye the living among the dead? That question of the angels was a rhetorical question. The angels were not looking for an answer. It was not as if the angels didn't know the answer, of course. It was a rhetorical question. The answer should have been obvious. The question of the angels actually brought the message of the angels. The whole message was contained in that question. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? And as you hear that question, imagining that you are one of those women mistakenly coming to the tomb that morning thinking that Jesus will still be dead and to bring your spices and your ointments, And you hear that question from these brilliant heavenly creatures. Why are you seeking the living among the dead? You can see in that question there is a gentle rebuke. You can see in that question the angels are telling them, you should not be looking for the living among the dead. Why are you doing that? You should know better than this. Oh yes, he was dead. You were right about that. Your eyes did not deceive you when you saw Jesus hanging on the cross, bloody and bleeding, and giving up the ghost. 
when you saw Joseph take down his body and wrap it in linen cloths and lay it in that sepulcher, you were not mistaken. He died. He was dead. He was among the dead. He was in this grave. But he is no longer dead. He is no longer in this grave. He is alive. And so we can see there's not only a rebuke in that question of the angels, but there's also a joyful revelation of the truth of what had happened that morning. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Immediately the women understood the message. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. He's no longer dead. He's alive. He lives. He lives. That's the message of the angels. He is not here anymore. He lives. He is not here. Now the angels were not telling the women something that they could not see with their own eyes when they said, he is not here. That was the obvious part. The women saw that with their own eyes. They looked into the tomb, and they looked back and forth, and he was not there. But what they could not understand was why he was not there. Where was the body? That's why Mary Magdalene turned around and ran back to the city. Her first thought was, someone took the body, someone took the body. But the message of the angels was, the message of God himself, the official announcement and proclamation of God to the women was, he is not here, but he is risen. He is raised from the dead. The verb in the passage is in the passive tense, the passive voice. He has been raised from the dead. Now Jesus himself said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And there's a sense in which Jesus raised his own body because he is the Son of God. But there's a sense too in which God raised him from the dead. He was raised from the dead. God would not leave his soul in hell. God would not leave his body in the grave. It was impossible for death to corrupt the blessed body of the Lord. God raised him up because he had conquered death by his death. Jesus is now the living. He is no longer among the dead. The message of the angels indicates, too, that Jesus arose from the dead into a higher, better, and more glorious body. He is not here. He is risen. He is alive. But how did he get out of this sepulcher? Well, the stone is rolled away. Oh, but he was already gone before the stone was rolled away. He exited the sepulcher simply by passing through it. Because when God raised Jesus from the dead, he didn't just bring him back to life. When we teach our children what the resurrection of Jesus means, we try to use the simplest of terms we can think of. And so we just say Jesus died and now he's alive again. And that's the simple truth of the resurrection. But it's more than that. And we have to see that when Jesus became alive again, he didn't just become alive again. 
but he arose to a higher form of life. The form of life that God had eternally determined to give to us through the resurrection. Not earthly, but heavenly. Not weak, but powerful. Glorious. And Jesus arose with that new heavenly glorious body with immortality as the first fruits of a great harvest. The Apostle Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ is the first fruits. The first fruits was the first bit of grain that was harvested from the field. And that first little bit, that first sheaf of barley or corn or wheat, represented the rest of the harvest. Jesus is the first fruits to rise from the dead. And in that, he is the pledge and the promise that the rest of the harvest will also rise from the dead. In the resurrection of Jesus, God preaches to us our own resurrection. He assures us, as Jesus rose from the dead, you will rise from the dead. So be not afraid of death, but say, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Thanks be to God who hath given us the victory through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it had to be. It was necessary. It was absolutely necessary for Jesus to rise from the dead. It had to happen. And now I call your attention to that part of the angel's message in the text. In verse 6, where he, they say to the women, Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. That's a very significant must. The angels were reminding the women of something Jesus himself had said earlier during his ministry in Galilee. We can find that in Luke 9, verse 22, and in other places. In that passage it says, Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. That's a striking and significant must. Before Jesus even went up to Jerusalem that last time, he was telling his disciples, I must go there. I must suffer there. I must be rejected there. I must be betrayed. I must be killed, crucified, dead. And I must rise. It must happen. That word must in the original Greek is a word that means it is necessary. Absolutely necessary. That's a very striking and significant word of Jesus that he taught his disciples before he died because it reveals that everything that happened to Jesus was not by chance, was not accidental, was not out of his control, but was exactly according to a predetermined plan. Every step. Every part of it 
That's the first explanation of why it was necessary. It was part of a predetermined plan. God had planned everything that Jesus would experience and suffer, including his resurrection, before the foundation of the world. Before he even created this world, God had determined that he was going to create a world. And in that world, he was going to glorify himself in the highest possible way that God, God, could think to glorify himself by manifesting himself as he really is, by manifesting his grace, manifesting his mercy, manifesting his love, his compassion toward sinners. Part of that predetermined plan was that mankind, in our first parents, would fall into sin, would become sinful and corrupt, would become worthy of death. In Adam, God had determined... All will sin. All will die. All will become deserving of death. But then in Christ, I will glorify myself in the highest and most marvelous way. In this way. By sending my son into the world to become a man and to suffer for those sinners. To be rejected, to be despised, to be wounded to be crucified, but then to rise from the dead. That was God's plan from all eternity. This is how I will glorify myself, by saving lost sinners through the sufferings and resurrection of my own Son. That's why it was necessary. Jesus had come to fulfill the will of his Father. That predetermined plan of God was revealed in the Old Testament, in the Scriptures, time and time again. At the very beginning, after Adam and Eve fell into sin, God gave the first promise to them, and in that first promise, he stated that the serpent, who was Satan, would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent, Satan. That was the prophecy, the promise that Christ, when he comes, he will be bruised by the devil. He must be crucified to fulfill that prophecy. God prophesied through David in Psalm 22 that his hands and his feet would be pierced and that he would be forsaken by God. That prophecy must be fulfilled. He prophesied through Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 53 that he would be despised and rejected of men, that he would be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, that all we like sheep have gone astray, but God would lay upon him the iniquities of us all. That must be fulfilled. Zechariah prophesied that he would be pierced, he would be smitten, the shepherd would be smitten, and the sheep would be scattered. But God also prophesied in Psalm 16 that he would not leave his soul in hell. He would not suffer his Holy One to seek corruption, but he would show him the path of life. He would raise him from the dead. All of that was prophesied. And now Jesus comes into the world and he tells them, all of this must happen. It must happen. 
And as you recall, Peter objected, No, Lord, no, no, no. And Jesus said, Get thee behind me, Satan. It must happen. And that's why it did happen. But there's more. When Jesus said that it must happen, not only because God had determined it and prophesied it, and that must be fulfilled, but what God determined to do for the glory of his name was not only to manifest his grace, his mercy, his love, his kindness, his compassion, but also his justice. God is love, but God is also just. And the justice of God must be satisfied. God had determined to glorify himself by revealing to all mankind his perfect justice in Christ. Jesus had told his disciples, I'm going up to Jerusalem. I must die. Because I must satisfy the justice of God for sinners who cannot do it themselves. God is just. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. God is just. We deserve to die. We deserve to be punished. And we could never suffer sufficiently to satisfy that justice of God. That's why there is a place called hell where sinners will suffer forever and ever for their sins. And that's what we deserve. We could never fully satisfy that. That's why Jesus must suffer and die on the cross in our place. And that's why he did. But that's not all. God would also manifest his justice in raising Jesus from the dead. God was just to raise Jesus from the dead. He had to do it. If God left Jesus in the grave, God would have shown he's unjust. Jesus didn't deserve to stay in the grave. Jesus finished his work on the cross. Jesus paid the price. He satisfied God's justice on the cross. That's why God raised him up. To show that he is just. If a man has committed a crime and he goes to jail and he serves his time, he fulfills his punishment, he must be released. That's justice. Jesus had paid the price in full. He must be released. God manifested his justice in the resurrection of Jesus. And there is the gospel. As the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 4, verse 25, Jesus was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. What Paul means there is, Jesus was delivered to the cross because of our sins. 
He suffered. He died. He was crucified because of our sins, to pay for our sins. But he was raised from the dead because of our justification. Because he finished paying for those sins on the cross. And that's why he was raised from the dead. The resurrection proclaims that we are justified. With all of your sins and your shame, children of God, go to the empty tomb of Jesus with the women and look into that tomb and take a look at what you see. You won't find the body of the Lord Jesus. Why? Because he paid for all your sins. He suffered for every single one of them. And God forgives you. The resurrection of Jesus is God's own stamp of approval and his testimony through the gospel to you. I forgive you, and I give you everlasting life. So don't be perplexed at the fact of the empty tomb. We are told that the women, when they went into the tomb, they were much perplexed. Don't be perplexed, but believe and confess that Jesus is risen indeed. Those women were believers. They were already believers that morning. They weren't unbelievers. Their perplexity did not arise out of unbelief. They show that they were believers by the fact that they went out to the tomb that morning. Just look at them. These wonderful, godly, virtuous women. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Salome, Mary the mother of James. Women who had followed Jesus, who believed in Jesus, who believed he was the Messiah. They loved him. But now he's dead. And they wanted to show their love to him one more time, so they prepared these sweet-smelling spices and ointments to lay lovingly over the body of their Lord. They were motivated by love to go out to the tomb that Sunday morning. And they didn't wait. They got up early and they rushed to the garden. They were believers, but their faith was still so weak. They were perplexed. They were baffled. They were confused. What is going on? What is happening here? Where is the body of the Lord? Did somebody take it? Their first thought was not resurrection, but their first thought was theft. Their faith was weak. And that would be the same response of the disciples as well when they would hear the reports of the women. We are told that they received them as idle tales. The men, the disciples. Idle tales. The women are telling tales, stories that aren't true. Their faith was weak. Nevertheless, God sent the angels to preach the gospel to the women there in the tomb to strengthen their faith. It was through the testimony of those bright, shining, heavenly messengers 
that the faith of the women that was already there was strengthened. And they came to see and to believe he's risen. He lives. He lives. It's true. Do you believe that? You weren't there. I wasn't there. We didn't get the privilege of looking into that tomb and hearing and seeing those angels. And yet, God gives to us what he didn't give to the women, something that Peter would later call a more sure word of prophecy, something more certain, more well-established than even hearing a voice from heaven, which you hear once and then is gone, or seeing angels and hearing their testimony, and then they disappear and fly away back to heaven. We have something more certain. We have the Scriptures. God has given us the holy, infallible, inspired Scriptures which contain the testimony of the angels to the women which the women passed on to the men, which the men wrote down in the Scriptures by infallible inspiration and now is passed down through thousands of years to you. Do you believe it? God has given to you the lively preaching and explanation of those Scriptures that Jesus is risen indeed. Do you believe it? Not all do. Many this morning are only happy that they have a long weekend to enjoy. They think nothing of the resurrection of Christ. They don't believe that the dead can rise. Those who are dead remain dead. Believe. Jesus who died is risen from the dead. Believe that and confess it to those out there who don't yet believe. Confess it to them. You're witnesses of this, and I am. Just like those women, just like the disciples. They were the first witnesses, but we are also witnesses. You say, but I didn't see it. But I just told you, you heard it, and you read it in the Scripture. You're a witness, and I'm a witness. Now go and confess that to men. noteworthy, isn't it? That women were the first to see the evidence of the resurrection of Christ. And women, not men, were the only ones to hear the testimony of the angels that day. As I said, the angels told the women, the women told the men, the men wrote it down, and so it has been passed down to us. Is that noteworthy? Surely is. Not noteworthy, though, as some would think, as many in this modern day who support the feminist movement that permits women to hold office in the church and to preach from the pulpits of the church. They like to refer to this. But we cannot pit one scripture against another scripture. And the rest of the New Testament makes very clear that Jesus did not call these women to be apostles. He did not ordain them into the office of ministers. The apostle will later point out that God only gives that right 
to men. Nevertheless, it's certainly noteworthy that God gave this testimony to women first and then to men. At the very least, it shows us that although men only may serve in the offices in the church, also the women are in the office of believer. And also the women have the calling and the ability to confess that. In that regard, men and women in the church are equal. Men and women all receive by faith the testimony of the scriptures and are witnesses thereby and called to go and tell others. That's what the angel said to the women. We don't read that in our text, but in Matthew 28, the angel of the Lord said to the women, Come see the place where the Lord lay and go quickly and tell his disciples. Go quickly and tell the disciples. Same in Mark chapter 16, verse 7. But go your way and tell his disciples and Peter, and Peter, tell him too. The women had the calling to go and tell them. So we simply make the point this morning that both the women and the men, all of us, not just the men, but also you women, are called to confess that Christ is risen indeed. In Proverbs 31, where the virtuous woman is described, she's not described as a prophet, priest, or king, as someone holding office in the church, but she is described as a beautiful, godly, virtuous lady who opens her mouth with wisdom. And teaches others. That's the virtuous woman. Although she is to be silent in terms of the pulpit, not in the pew, not in the home, not in the Christian school, not in the neighborhood. But the woman, like us men, we are called to confess the glorious truth of our text. Believe it. Believe it. Remember what Jesus said to Thomas. Because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Amen. Our gracious God and Father, we give thee thanks for this glorious message that our Lord Jesus has risen from the dead. We pray that thou would strengthen our faith that thou would give us great hope and comfort, that thou would also fill us with boldness, like those women and men who went forth from the tomb, eager to tell of what they had seen and heard. May we also go forth today with that same eagerness, not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, but may we be willing to suffer shame for his name and even scorn as we may be ridiculed for our faith, grant that we might nevertheless bear witness of the truth to those around us and use our witness to to gather others to this faith as well.